0: (laughs) and hopefully we're all sinless by now, having put it out. (laughs) Uh, I think it's an ongoing process. So let's pick it up in John 13 tonight. Actually, we went over this just a few days ago at the Passover service, but at the Passover service, we just read it. We don't expound it and get into it, so... Uh, Since we're going on through the book, I thought it won't hurt us to go back over this anyway. There's an awful lot of very, very sound uh, instruction that Christ gives the disciples. And I'm quite sure we didn't get it all the other night. So, it won't hurt us to repeat it, and perhaps with a little comment along the line. So, in chapter 13, verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover... Now, in chapter 5, verse 1, he called it the Jews' Feast. And I think, is it chapter 18 here? Two or three times he calls uh, calls it the Jews' Passover because they were keeping it a day late. But here, he's about to uh, partake of the Passover with his disciples, and he doesn't call it the Jews' Passover. He calls it the Feast of the Passover. So he makes a distinction between what he was doing and what the Jews do, you remember they uh, they tried to get his get him down off the stake before sundown because it was very clear that they said that was the Jews' preparation day. So they were keeping the Sabbath on the 15th, not the 14th. Even though they keep it on the 15th. It's ironic in a way. The Jews understand that the night to be much observed isn't 24 hours after the Passover service. They just simply keep the Passover on the 15th. But I don't think they have a a separate night to be much observed on the 16th. I don't I don't think I've heard of that. If they do, I'm not aware of it. <laughs> so this was the correct Passover, beginning at the begin or happening at the beginning of the 14th. Now, notice also the terminology here. Now, before the feast of the Passover. Now, didn't Exodus 12 call it, the 14th, a feast? A holy convocation, a feast, and a memorial, and, a, and a, an ordinance forever. So, we've never, in worldwide, all, of, all those decades, we never looked at the Passover as a feast. But here we find in Old Testament and New Testament, the Feast of the Passover. So it was a feast day. I pointed that out, I'm sure, in the article years ago that we did on this. But uh, it's nice to go over it and see as we go through the context that that's again confirmed. So the Feast of the Passover, when Emmanuel knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, as an additional thought on being the 14th, the Jews reasoned, and some in the church have reasoned, that, well, he may have taken it on the beginning of the 14th, because he would be dead by the beginning of the 15th. So he took it a day early, but we should take it on the 15th, because that's when he actually died, or toward the end of the 14th, beginning of the 15th. So we should take it at the same time he died. And some of them take it uh, in the afternoon of the 14th, some do it at uh, sundown on the 14th or beginning of the 15th. But he told us to do things as he did, and it was instituted clear back in Exodus with the beginning of the 14th very clearly. Well, he knew the sequence of what he would go through. So they set it up to sacrifice the lamb at the beginning of the 14th. And he would do that, and we would continue to do that as it had been done from Exodus 12 all the way on through. There's nothing in there that says it was ever switched to late in the 14th or the beginning of the 15th. Nowhere. Anyway, he loved his own which were in the world until the time that he died. And he resumed that love after. (coughs) So Christ didn't just love those who followed him. He loved all human beings and still does. He doesn't love the sin. He doesn't love the problems that we create. But he does love us and hopes we get out of the sin. And supper being ended... uh, The Greek force there, I think, is continuing. Supper continuing, or being in existence, or while uh, supper was taking place. (coughs) I looked that up, Uh, so it wasn't necessarily the end as stated here in the King James, but uh, as it unfolded, or was partaken of, The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Emmanuel, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he was come from God and went to God, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Now, it's interesting in understanding the sequence here that it doesn't mention the bread and the wine here like it does in Luke and other accounts it just says he rose from supper and started doing the foot washing well we'll get on to it a little later but i want to go into this first and that is that <coughs> right after the foot washing he handed judas the sop and judas left immediately he told him to hurry uh so it was after the foot washing well let's go back to luke 22 and understand something about this, because Luke doesn't go into the foot washing specifically, he just does the bread and the wine. Although he, after the bread and the wine, in the context, Luke talks about uh, humility and being converted and so on, and some of the same things that Christ talked about at the foot washing in John 13. But anyway, verse 19 of Luke 22, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. <coughs> Likewise also the cup, after supper, uh, saying, This cup is the New Testament, and my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. So, when the bread and the wine were taken, Judas was still there. His hand was still on the table. Now, he left right after the foot washing. And here, Luke says, he was there for the bread and the wine. So, if the foot washing had happened to be before the bread and the wine, Judas would have been gone before the bread and the wine were served. But he was still there. Now, some would say, well, he wouldn't have let Judas partake of the bread and the wine. Well, he did. (laughs) It says it right here. They took the bread and the wine, and the hand of him that betrayed me is with me on the table. After the bread and the wine. Why not let him take it? The other disciples weren't converted either at that point. They were on their way toward it. Judas was not, but a Judas will be a partaker someday, will he not? I, I probably. There's nothing in the Bible that says Judas is lost any more than it says Esau is. In fact, there is no reference anywhere in the Bible that passes final judgment on any individual human being. There's not one. People have assumed Judas is lost or that Esau is, or whatever. They were in danger. Christ didn't even tell the Pharisees they were lost. He says, you are in danger if they didn't repent. So no judgment is passed ahead of time. So he allowed it. And when the foot washing uh, occurred, the disciples still didn't know which one was the traitor. Because all had partaken of the meal. They'd all had the bread and the wine. And Then he says, well, you still haven't figured this out, so I'll give a sop to the guy. So he handed it to Judas and said, go do it quickly. So if you put John and Luke together, it becomes very, very clear that uh, the bread and the wine came first, uh, then the foot washing, and then Judas leaving. If you read on down here in Luke 22, verse 24, there was a strife among them of which of them should be accounted the greatest, and so on. Well, what did Christ say in John 13 about the foot washing? It was all about humility, not about bragging about who's the greatest. So uh, that context of what Luke had there about who's the greatest and all that is in context of of uh, John 13, where... Humble yourselves and wash each other's feet. Don't sit around and argue about who's the greatest. (coughs) So even though Luke does not mention the foot washing specifically, he repeats some of the story that Christ repeated to the disciples at the foot washing. I think that should be very clear uh, and easily understood. It's like Frank Nelty, who wrote a paper on it agreed with what I just told you. He said, Luke is indeed saying that the bread and the wine came before the foot washing. He admitted that. And then his way around it was, he says, well, Luke wasn't an eyewitness, so we just have to throw out his account. If you're going to throw out that part of it, might as well throw out the whole book, hadn't you? (laughs) If he wasn't an eyewitness, then none of that book means anything oh boy, I think we get ourselves in trouble when we start saying you can throw part of the Bible out because it doesn't agree with your theory. Clearly, Luke was telling the truth and Frank was just simply unwilling to accept it. That's that's a pretty poor excuse. You've got to come up with something better than that. If you can't explain it away, you just throw out part of the Bible. And Christ warned in Matthew. I mean, in Revelation 22, that's a no-no. <coughs> we have to be careful, brethren. You know, Frank Nelfe is a very intelligent man, and uh, and has preserved and learned a lot of truth. Uh, but when somebody just blatantly says, "Well, that part of the Bible's no good," uh, that's that's scary. That to me is truly scary. So even though we can have a lot of truth, we have to guard our attitude and our approach to be sure that we put God on the level that He should be and put His Word on the same level. Same man said in a sermon, right? I think it was right there in Kanab one time, that uh, we have to think above Scripture. I've quoted that more than once, but How can you possibly think above Scripture? I said this just a few days ago. I have a really extreme struggle thinking up to Scripture, much less above it. We better not let any of God's words fall to the ground, protect them, they're precious. Anyway, going back to John 13 and picking up the context again, it says, He rose from supper in verse 4 and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Uh, I don't know what he was wearing there particularly, but a jacket or a, a robe or something, uh, whatever it was, is his outer cover apparently, he, he laid aside and then wrapped a towel around him. I've tried to to kind of do that, take off my jacket and there's no place to hang it and and wrap the towel around me to try to do it more like he did. Uh, But it's a little awkward, I I don't know, and sometimes the towel's too small to get around me. So I'm not not sure exactly what we need to do there. But I, I like to follow it as closely as we can. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Uh, The custom then, as I'm sure we all know, was that everybody wore sandals and didn't wear socks, and so your feet were dusty, and when you came into somebody's house, it was customary to wash their feet for them, get the dust off from the travel. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, an act of service and an act of humility. Well, these disciples preferred, instead of washing each other's feet, to sit around and argue about who was the greatest. Quite a different, quite a contrast in, uh, in attitude. <clears throat> then came he to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Do you wash my feet? And he answered and said to him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. He said, You don't understand what this is all about. Peter said to him you shall never wash my feet and Emmanuel answered him if I wasn't if I wash you not you have no part with me so Peter understood the custom and that it is a humbling thing to bend down and wash, wash somebody's feet and that's why he objected he says you know you're 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 the Christ oh. I don't want you washing my feet. Why should you humble yourself before me? And in a way, Peter's attitude was not wrong. I mean, if Christ were to come in here now and want to wash your feet, would you say, yeah, you deserve to wash my feet? Or would you say, oh, you're you're my Lord. You're my Savior. Don't wash my feet. So I don't think Peter was a necessarily a bad attitude here. Uh, He understood the humility that is involved in the custom. So, he was simply reacting, You're my Lord and Master. Why should you wash mine? I ought to wash yours. But Christ was making a point. Uh, He says, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter also said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Uh, Peter was an emotional type, it seems from the scriptures, and and uh, an eager. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? They escape me these days. Of, of a ready mind is kind of what I was looking for. Uh, he didn't hold back. He was he was always chomping at the bit to get whatever it was done done, whether it was whacking off the. Servant of the high priest here, or whatever needed done, Peter wanted to get on with it. So he was a wholehearted type of a person, uh, eager to please in that sense. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when he saw that he, he couldn't have any part with Christ unless he humbled himself before Peter, he says, Wash me all over. Emmanuel said to him, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, You are not all clean. There were evil thoughts in the room, satanic thoughts that were going through Judas's head. So he says, You're not all clean. Well, they had just had the Passover uh, and had the bread and the wine, but Judas didn't get the point. Uh, he was still ready to betray. It's like us maybe going through the Passover service, Maybe we've been angry with somebody, we've been offended about something, and we're in a really nasty, bad attitude toward them. And uh, we go to the Passover and ask God to forgive our sins, and we come out on the other side of the Passover, still breathing fumes and vengeance and hatred and, and anger toward the person that we were angry with before the Passover. In other words, the Passover didn't change our attitude. The The evil thinking... The ungodly thinking is still there. Something should change at Passover, shouldn't it? Didn't Christ say, if, if I, you don't forgive others, he won't forgive you? So if we go keep the Passover, actually drink the blood, the wine, and we still have ill, nasty thoughts towards someone, we have taken the Passover unworthily, not having repented of our sins. And we are drinking damnation to ourselves. Do we understand that? If you come there with unforgiveness in your heart and mind, you are drinking damnation because he says if you don't forgive others, I will not forgive you. And if he does not forgive you, then where do you wind up? Lake of fire, damnation. That's why Paul wrote that. He says, you think about this carefully. You you don't take this Passover uh, uh, carelessly. There had better be a change in attitude. It should come before the Passover. And then when you take the Passover, if you are in a forgiving attitude toward others, then you can be forgiven. But if you're not, and you come out of that Passover with that same nasty, rotten, bitter, hateful, vengeful, whatever attitude that is ungodly, you have taken the Passover unworthily. I don't know how to put that any more plainly than that. All right, let's go on. He says, You're not all clean. Well, Judas hadn't changed his attitude when he took that bread and wine, so he wasn't clean. So after he had washed their feet, verse 12, and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Do you grasp what just happened here? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. So you you, you got that much right so far. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In other words, he says, if I humbled myself before you, you should humble yourself before each other. I know that there are people in the church, Over the decades, who have had attitudes against someone and have literally gotten on their knees and washed that person's feet and still had the same nasty attitude toward them that they did before they washed their feet. The attitude didn't change. I mean, on a personal, individual level, I've seen it. I knew they had the attitude, they did the foot washing. And sometimes they just got paired up with that person that they had a problem with. And a day, three days later, they still had the same hateful attitude. Never changed. Now, when we do something that God tells us to do, there's a reason for it. And he means business about our attitudes. So, I'm not trying to condemn anybody here. I'm just telling you this is the way that it is. And I can't uh judge anybody else. That's between them and God. Uh I just have to be sure I am humble and meek and don't carry any uh attitude that is a wrong attitude away from Passover. And if I do, I better spend the next days of unleavened bread getting over it uh, and forgiving lest I be condemned. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And he was a servant. So he says we ought, basically he's saying, we all ought to humble ourselves before each other. Whether he was Christ himself or just a disciple, he washed theirs and said they should wash each other's. And then, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount is where he had told them, if you don't forgive each other, then I will not forgive you. I I don't know how he could have put that any plainer, any clearer. And I've said it around here now for years and years, over and over and over again, and yet there were attitudes here ten years ago that remained here five years ago, and in some cases are still here, because we don't get the point. At some point, we have to get the point. There's always space to repent. I say always. There'll come a point when there's not. It'll be too late. And we'll find ourselves in the tribulation and might repent there. And if we don't repent there, we'll find ourselves in the lake of fire. That's just the way that it is. Verse 17, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Think about that a moment. When we wash each other's feet and humble ourselves before each other, it should make us happy. That's what it says, happy. Happy are you if you do that. If you do that grudgingly, or with a self-righteous, or I'm better than you attitude, or any of those negative carnal attitudes, and you go away from Passover, and you still are filled with bile and hate and anger, You're not happy. Anyone who hates, anyone who's bitter, anyone who holds grudges is not a happy person. Because those negative attitudes eat them up, is what it does to them. And they are not happy. Now, if we truly change our attitudes and are truly humble and meek in heart and mind then we get rid of those uh, negative, evil thoughts, and then we're happy. But you can't be happy when you're full of anger. It just it, it, It's impossible. You might smile. <laughs> you might yuck it up. But deep inside, you're not happy because anger is not a happy attitude. It's just not. It's not a godly attitude either. Love, joy, and peace are godly attitudes. So we need attitude adjustment hour pretty regular. Uh, verse 18 I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Is he talking about just the bread of the dinner there? Is he talking about the bread of his body? Uh, He he did sit there and did eat bread with him. I think, as Luke put it, uh, he had both. Both the, the meal and the spiritual bread. Physical, but with spiritual meaning. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. Now, let's use the example of Samuel there again. Uh, they were against Samuel. And Samuel was all upset about it and says, Lord, they're against me. They've rejected me. And God told him, No, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Because God had sent Samuel. And when God sent Samuel, uh, He endorsed Samuel So when they rejected Samuel, and Samuel was probably not perfect. Do you think he was? No. Only one man has been, so Samuel obviously wasn't. So Samuel had his faults, he had his problems, he had his sins, he had his attitudes. But God had sent Samuel. But God took it personal. He says, if they reject you whom I've sent, they rejected me. So we have to be very, very careful. God has always worked through human beings. He always has. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets, the disciples and apostles. When Ananias and Sophia rejected the apostles, did God take it personal? They dropped dead. <laughs> He said, You've rejected me, Ananias and Sapphira. You've lied to the ones I sent. We have to be very, very careful. You know, I was around Herbert Armstrong quite a bit, and I could see things in the man where he was very human. There were times he would blow a cork over some trivial matter. He had quite a temper, and sometimes he, his temper was needed. But there were times when his temper was not necessary. Then I saw him lift himself up in ego and vanity and pride sometimes uh, about, what, jet airplanes or, <laughs> or buildings or whatever it might have been. Uh, he wasn't a perfect man. But, you know, I respected what God was doing through that man. And he corrected me personally a time or two. And part of what he did was right one time, and part of what he did was wrong. And what he did the second time was probably all right. Uh, But he didn't even hear the whole matter the first time. So, uh, he had his faults. But I recognized him as the one that God had sent to do a job. And there was no way I was going to disrespect that man. Because <laughs> God sent him, and if I had rejected him or thrown mud at him, then I was rejecting God. But there were people that made a whole career out of writing books about how bad Herbert Armstrong was, uh, you know. I don't think God was happy with him. We do have to be careful. So he says, he that receives whoever I send receives me. And he sent the sent the apostles, and if they were not received well by people, God was not happy with that. When Emmanuel had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you shall betray me." Uh, he he knew all along. He knew when he called Judas that he would be the one. But at the same time, it troubled him when it actually began to happen because. He cared for Judas. He loved Judas. He loves all people. So when it came right down time for Judas to do it, uh, he, he was troubled about it. And if we have brothers and sisters that have been called into the truth, and we see them with different approaches and attitudes that aren't the best, it should trouble us. We shouldn't condemn. We shouldn't throw them away, uh, it should trouble us. Now, they may throw themselves away. That's, that's a whole different matter. Uh, but there are times that the Bible says to cast them out, uh, and even to publicly mark. So there is a time that it has to be done. But I, I know at any time I've had to do that, and it's been precious few times in the 50 years that I've been involved in the ministry come this spring, or 1st of June. Uh, It has always troubled me greatly uh, to have to put somebody out. I don't think it's been more than 10, 12 people in 50 years, but uh, each time it was not fun. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. After all that they'd been through, they still didn't get who it was. They were real perceptive guys, I guess, at that point. <laughs> Verse 23, Now there was one leaning on Jesus, or Emmanuel's bosom, one of his disciples whom Emmanuel loved. He didn't name him because it was himself, John. Uh, he There's another place he says that uh, the disciple whom he loved. Uh, so he he was... He was humble enough not to say I was leaning on his breast, but but one that he loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. Peter realized that Christ and John had a very close affinity and relationship with each other, closer than he had with Christ. Now, he was to be the lead apostle because of some of his leadership qualities, but Apparently, John had a personality that was very akin to Christ's. And when we speak of John as the disciple who wrote most about love, uh, then you understand that. Peter, uh, James, and John. Peter wrote about hope. James wrote about faith. And John wrote about love. And love is the greatest thing. Now, faith and hope are important, too, but not as important as love. So, John's spirit, attitude, approach uh, was very much like Christ, and he was a man who was full of love. So, probably, as just as a human relationship, John's relationship with Christ was the closest of the twelve, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he felt comfortable enough to lay on his bosom, lay on his chest, uh, whereas some of the others might not have felt quite that comfortable. So Christ is not one who shows favoritism. He's not a respecter of persons, and we shouldn't be. But that doesn't mean that we won't be closer to some people than others. What about when it comes marriage time? You can't be a respecter of persons, so you have to marry everybody? Uh, or not get married? No, I don't think so. You find one that you uh, enjoy the most and grow to learn to love, and, and so you put the others aside and marry that one. And that's not wrong. That's not being a respecter of persons. It's just being in love with this one and loving them in a way that you don't love anybody else. Anyway, verse 26, Emmanuel answered, "He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it." And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, actually pretty much took over. Then said Emmanuel to him, "That you do, do quickly. You know you're going to do it. The die is cast. Satan just entered you. Go get it done." Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this to him. They still had waked up to the fact that he was going to betray him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the money bag, that Emmanuel had said to him, buy those things we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Uh, They weren't really thinking. Uh, The Sabbath had already started. You don't buy and sell on the Sabbath. So why would they think he was going to go buy something they needed for the feast? Well, obviously they weren't even thinking it through of what time of day it was and what they were doing. Or to go give something to the poor. I mean, they were used to seeing Judas coming and going to get supplies and charity or whatever Christ told him to do. So they just thought he was on another errand for Christ, I guess. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So, uh, this occurred at twilight, and then by the time they finished the dinner, finished the foot washing, it was dark, it was night. So, it wasn't uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, as some do, on the 14th. It was at night. It had to be the beginning of the 14th then. Therefore, when he was gone... Out, Emmanuel said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So the things that were about to occur were all a part of the glory because they were all uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. Even the horrible things that were about to happen were part of the story of what would lead to his glorification. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So the troubling that he felt when Judas was set to betray him. The care and the love that he had even for Judas is the kind of love that we ought to have one for another. It doesn't matter how repulsive somebody might be to us of whatever way. We still have to love them and realize that they're a son of God and that he loves them. Hope and pray that they change some things. Hope and pray that we change some things. But he gave his life for them and for us. Do we love each other that much that we'd be willing to give up our life for somebody else? That's how much he loved. He set the example that we should follow his steps. Anyway, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where do you go? Emmanuel answered him, Whether I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. I think I flipped over here and referred to this the other day. But it uh, is another confirmation of what I gave in that series on uh, how exclusive is the church about how we will rise in the air when Christ returns. We don't come back to the earth because He doesn't come to the earth then. He goes back to His Father's throne and marries us on the sea of glass. We spend a year's honeymoon with him. And then we come back with him when he's come in a vesture dipped in blood on a horse and all his saints with him. He comes down to subdue the earth. Then I think we go to heaven again. A second time. We get to go twice. Twice. Because when the Father and the Son and the Holy City come down at the beginning of the millennium, the 144,000 are with Him. I think it was Jude that said, was it Jude, or was it First Thessalonians 4, where he says, once He comes and gathers us, we will ever be with Him. We'll never leave Him again, and He will never go away and leave us again. So if He goes back to the Father, we go with Him. If the Father and He come down to set up the kingdom, we come with Him. As soon as we arise at the last trump to be with Christ, His goings back and forth from the Father to the earth, we're with Him through the whole thing. Seems, is that Jude or is that... In, I see somebody looking, trying to find it. Uh, we shall ever be with Him. Yeah, First Thessalonians 4.17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So he has he comes comes and goes about three times there, and we'll be with him back and forth. (coughs) That's why he told them, you can't go with me now. I'm going to ascend to the Father, and you're going to stay here on the earth and preach, uh, but you will go with me later, where he was going then. Up into the Father's throne in heaven. You will follow me after. Why did we read over that for years and years and years and never realize that? I think partly it was a mindset. Herbert Armstrong had come out of a Protestant world and he was basically preaching to a Protestant world, and they all thought they were going to heaven when they died. So he spent a great deal of time explaining over and over and over, you don't go to heaven and you don't go to hell, you're in the grave and you're dead till the resurrection. And uh, just thinking that and emphasizing that might have caused him and us to read over that and not let it register because we had in mind we ain't ever going to heaven. No, it's not that we're, we're not going to live there, we're not going to rule there. Well, we'll live there for a year the honeymoon and then come back, and we'll reign a thousand years on the earth once the kingdom comes down with the Father and the Son at the beginning of the millennium. Anyway, he said, you can't follow me until afterward. (coughs) Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. If you're going to die and be resurrected and go to heaven, I'll do that with you. Emmanuel answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? That's what Peter was volunteering there. Now, you can't say Peter had a bad attitude. He said, If you're going to die, I'll die with you. Well, later he did die for Christ's sake. He was martyred. But Christ said, You may can say it, Peter, but you're not prepared to follow through. You you may have this emotion, but but you're not ready for that. Well, by the time he was martyred, he stood up for it and and, and took the martyrdom. But Christ said, you're not ready yet. The clock, the, the uh, rooster shall not crow, till you have denied me three times. And then, when the rooster crowed three times, maybe he didn't really hear it the first time. It was subliminal. Second time, it didn't really register. And when that rooster crowed the third time, he said, oh, man, look what I did. Well, that's in another account. It's not right here. Uh, but that's what happened. Well, we're within 11 minutes of 8 o'clock, and I have a little something that we need to go over here this evening uh, real quickly. Well, so, isn't when, uh, what? when that crowed, Crossed those two times. Somebody pointed out that at that time Peter looked up and Christ looked up and he saw eye to eye. Yeah. And Peter understood. Said, oops. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's stop there then, and uh, we'll see you at 1 o'clock tomorrow. At well, this point, I, I thought, you know, we talked about they didn't understand.